Welcome to Practical Christian Living. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul. It is that hope that we have that becomes our anchor. What is that that is going to keep us from falling back from where we came, from getting back into religiosity or, or back into an old lifestyle? It is the hope. This world tempts and entices us with all sorts of temporary pleasures that keep us from seeking Jesus. But the things of this world are just that, they're temporary. The only real hope we have that lasts is in Christ. So what do you put your hope in? If it's Jesus, then you're firmly anchored and not likely to drift away. That is our prayer for you. Stay with us today on Practical Christian Living as we take a look at Hebrews 6, 7 through 20. Here's more from our last Bible study with Robert Furrow, pastor of Calvary, Tucson. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown towards his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end. Isn't it interesting that verse 11 talks about assurance of hope? This passage is the passage that people argue about assurance of salvation. And he says, you be diligent to get to the full assurance of the hope. How is it that you can be fully assured that you are saved? Get in the race. If you're outside of the race, if you walked with God before and you're no longer walking with him, there's controversy as to whether or not you're saved. But those who are in the race, those who are loving Jesus with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, there's no question as to whether or not you're saved. We know that you have made a commitment to Christ because of, of that commitment, because of that love that you have for him. Now, Christian life is a race. It's not a sprint. It's a marathon. You are in it for the long haul. And sometimes when people get saved, and maybe this is you, People get saved and they get all uptight. I got to grow. I got to learn. I got to learn everything that I can. I got to do everything that I can for Jesus. And they get going. And the Lord would say to you, calm down. Take it one step at a time. Take time to grow. It's, it's, a, it's a marathon. If you went to a race and the marathon to run it, somebody brought out some starting blocks and nailed them into the concrete, in a marathon, and then got down on the starting blocks like they do for a dash and, and sprinted, you might go, settle down. You have 26 miles to run. You idiot, you're going to pass out in 200 yards if you run like that. That's how a lot of people try to start the Christian race. We get saved and we go, I'm gone. And we're out of there. And all of a sudden we're trying to lead Bible studies and we're trying to do all of these things. And God's just saying, slow down, learn, grow, mature. We have plenty of time for that. We have plenty of time for you to do all the things that you need to do as you grow. When someone runs a marathon, the vast majority of people who run marathons don't run them to win. There's only a handful of people in every marathon that have a chance of winning, and most of them are Kenyans. <laughs> I don't know why that's the case, but it's true. Look it up. Most of the people that win marathons are Kenyans. They're winning them. Everybody else is in it. If you say to them, do you think you're going to win? They go, no, I hope I finish. Everybody else is running to finish it. So when their marathon starts, there's some that start with a pretty good pace especially those that run it in the six hours or whatever it is the winning hours are. It's an amazing pace that they set when they, when they take off. Yeah, but for most people, they get into their marathon run. You know what that run is? It is just kind of like a little, you know, it's so slow that people walking past them. 
but they know I've got to run this thing for the full marathon and I want to finish. Listen, if you're on the side now and you don't have the full assurance of hope, get back in the race. It's a marathon. Get back in the race. But some of you guys are sluggish. I, you know, some of you guys are sluggish right now. But some of you guys are sluggish spiritually. Look at verse 12. That you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience have inherited the promise. Some of you guys have become sluggish in the race. Some of you guys are falling back. But you need to imitate by those who by faith and patience inherit the promises of God. God has given us great promises. Promises of eternity, promises of the future, promises in our lives, promises of how he'll use us. But we have a time from between the time the promise is given and between the time that we receive the promise. And Christianity is often not what we expected. The expectations of marriage often aren't what people think when they get married. A lot of times people's expectations in marriage are dashed in the first week. It's done. I've had people come back after a week of, of being married and say, do, does Calvary do anything like annul marriages? Can we kind of like just undo this thing like it never happened because it wasn't what they expected? Well, sometimes the Christian life is like that. We think it's going to be one way. We have a picture of what it's going to be like. But then there's the reality of what Christian life is really about. And it is work and it is living for him and it is denying yourself and it is sacrifice. And a lot of people don't count the cost. They don't consider these things when they become Christians. So they start to run the race and then they're no longer running it. They, they, they have a little faith, but faith is when you believe God enough to change the way you live. Faith is when you say, not just, I have faith, I believe God's there, but faith is when you say, I'm going to live like a Christian. And we want to be imitators of those who by faith and patience inherit the promises. Patience. The promise hasn't come to pass yet, but I know it's going to be here one day and I'm going to live like that. See, a lot of us struggle with patience. We say, I want patience and I want it now. I want it right now. Give me patience now. And God says, hang on there. You're just going to have to wait. It's going to take some time. And so he gives an example. It says in verse 13, for when God made a promise to Abraham, for he could not swear by anyone greater than himself, he swore by himself. Look ahead with me to verse 16. For men indeed swear by greater and an oath for confirmation for them an end of a dispute. Now, those two verses are just saying this, that God, when he swore, he swore by himself because there was no one greater. And when men are in an argument, when they're in a dispute, they swear by something greater than themselves. Somebody says, I did that. And you go, no, you didn't. Yes, I did. No, you didn't. Yes, I did. No, you didn't. Swear to God. Okay, I swear to God. Now, I'm not saying that you should swear to God, okay? Jesus said, don't swear. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. I'm just saying that's what we do, right? And remember, the scribes and Pharisees said, if you swear by the temple, you can break your oath. But if you swear by the gold in the temple, you can't break your oath. And Jesus said, what nonsense. Stop it all together. But when someone swears... When we were kids, we used to say, I swear to God, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. If I'm not telling the truth, then stab a needle in my eye. I'm telling you the truth, right? Now, when people swear, they swear by something greater. No one says, I swear by my chihuahua. <laughs> because we won't believe you. We don't know how you feel about your chihuahua. Your chihuahua probably goes and pees in another room when you're not looking. You wonder, why does my house stink? Because you have a small dog, okay? That's what small dogs do. They go around. They don't want to go outside. It's cold. They shiver. They shake. They want to stay inside. So they go around somewhere and they pee. You find the spot later on. What in the world's going on here? Your chihuahua. And that's what's happening. 
so you swear by someone greater, right? Well, God couldn't swear by anyone greater because he's the greatest. Not Muhammad Ali, but God. And so he swore by himself, telling us that we know this promise will come to pass. Now, then it says he swore by himself and then go back to verse 14, saying, surely blessings, I will bless you and multiplying, I will multiply you. And I love verse 15. It's a little compact verse. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. It just seems like such a, a neat little verse and Abraham's life must have been such a neat little life. After he had patiently endured, he received the promise. Well, Abraham didn't receive the promise God gave him for 25 years. And here's the promise he made him. In multiplying, I'm going to multiply your seed and through your seed, I'm going to bless the world. Okay. And Sarah's going to have that child. He gave that promise to Abraham when he was 75 years old and Sarah was 65 years old. Sarah was barren, had no children. Abraham didn't have any kids. Abraham, his name was changed to Abraham. Before that, it was Abram. And Abram means father. So people would come up to Abraham. Abram, 75 years old. What's your name? My name's Abram. Oh, your name's father. How many kids you got? None. Didn't have any kids. And then God says, I'm going to give you a kid by Sarah. And so they start waiting. And a decade goes by. And now he's 85 years old. And Sarah's 75 years old. And Sarah says, I'm getting older and you're even older than me. Why don't you go ahead and take my handmaiden, go in unto her, and we'll have a kid by her. And then we'll call that God's kid. We'll call that the kid of the promise. And Abraham says, okay. So he takes Hagar. He sleeps with her. And they have a, a boy named Ishmael. Some time passes and Abraham figures he's helped God out. He's seen God happen. How often do we think we have to help God out in making the promises come to pass? So he'd help God out and God shows up and says, listen, I'm going to have you have a child by Sarah. And Abraham goes, uh, wait a minute, God. Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. The way that it's written there, oh, he gets that oh before. Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Like it's a very religious moment for him. Oh, God, that Ishmael might live before you. And God says, no, but it is through Sarah that the promise will come. Now, Abraham could have gone, all right, God, I'm like, I'm marching on 90. You could do it any day now. But the Bible says that Abraham believed God and it was accredited to him righteousness. He all of a sudden at that age, late in his 80s, said, I believe you're going to do it. And my wife is going to have a child. And you might think right then that the promise came. It was just the next couple of years, but it didn't. Another decade passed and he had no baby. He's getting older. She's getting older until she's 89 years old. Okay. Can you picture an 89 year old woman in your mind? All right. That's Sarah. And he's 99 years old. Later on about, about having a baby, she would say, am I being old? And my husband being old, am I going to have pleasure again? Now, she might have been talking about the pleasure of having a baby, but I don't think she was. She was saying, this old man ain't come around for a while, folks. Am I going to have pleasure again? I don't think this is going to happen. So when she's 89, the Lord shows up with two of his angels and they appear as men and they have a meal with Abraham at the door of his tent. And the Lord says to Abraham, at this time next year, I'm going to return and your wife, Sarah, is going to have a baby. And Sarah's in the tent. She's behind the tent door and she laughs to herself. Nobody can hear her. But the Lord says, why did Sarah laugh? And Sarah says from within the tent, I didn't laugh. She's listening to the conversation out there. 
And so, but why did she laugh? Because it's a, it's a funny thing. When she's 90, she's, she gets pregnant. It happens. And she starts getting that little belly, not like the 90-year-old, but the belly. And then it's, she's walking around. Now, you ladies that are, are, are pregnant now, when you're maybe seven, eight months, getting up and down in chairs is difficult now, isn't it? And I'm sorry. You, we're laughing with you, not at you. You look funny when you're getting up out of the chair. <laughs> okay, I got it. I got it. Now, imagine a 90-year-old getting up out of the chair. <laughs> pregnant. I got my baby here. 90. I'm 90. I got a baby. I'm having a baby. I'm 90. Now, the baby's born, and you know what they name him? Laughter. We're all laughing at Sarah. She, they laughed, but they didn't laugh because she was 90 and he was 100 when they had that baby. They laughed because the promise of God came about. And listen carefully, folks. We're going to laugh with joy when the promises of God come about. Isaac is a great name for the promises of God. <laughs> Laughter. Because we who are patiently enduring by faith will one day see all of the promises that God has made come true. We might not see him now. We might not see him until we get into eternity. But we will see every promise God has given us come to pass. And that's why we need to be imitators of those who by faith and patience inherited the promise. And Abraham finally received it. Now it goes on in verse 17. And says, thus God determined to show more abundantly to the heirs of the promise, the immutability of his counsel confirmed it by an oath. Now, verse 17 is one of those verses in Hebrews that when you're reading it by yourself for your quiet time at night, that you just keep reading. You just read 17 and go, oh, I don't know what that means. I'm just going on. And you just go on. Well, he's saying this. Let's break it down. Thus God determined to show more abundantly to the heirs of the promise. That is, we're the heirs of the promise. And he wanted to show more abundantly to us the immutability. What is immutability? It's a term that is only be referenced to God, really. It's unchangeable. If something is immutable, it's unchangeable. It never changes. And God is, it's a theological term, immutable. And so God wanted to show to the, to more abundantly to us, the heirs, the unchangeableness of the counsel confirmed by an oath. So God confirmed it by an oath saying, this is not going to change. And then it says in verse 18, that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. God swore an oath which can't change and it's impossible for God to lie. And therefore by those two things, he confirmed to us the promise that's going to be made. It goes on to say that we might have a strong consolation and have fled the for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. That is, that we who are in Christ have left this world and we have hold on to hope. For a while, we live for the things of this world. We live for pleasure or we live for power or we live for fame or we live for trying to make things happen. Some of us live for sex. Some of us live for drugs. Some of us live for other things. We live for people. And, and we came to the point where we realized all of this is empty and all of this is going to end up empty. And where is my life going in this direction? So we, the vast majority of us in this room, turned from those things and we grabbed a hold of hope. Now, the word hope here in this verse and in the Bible is different than the English word for hope. When I say, I hope so, it's usually a long shot, all right? You go out and you buy a lottery ticket. Now, I realize most of you don't do that, but some of you do. You buy a lottery ticket and you hide it. And you think, I'm going to win the lottery one day. And when I do, I'm going to give everybody everything. I'm going to give them what I do. And God, I'll give you 20% if you just let me win this lottery ticket. Okay, so you do those things. 
But you don't realize that there is more of a chance that you will be attacked by a bear than win that lottery, okay? So you say, someone says, hey, I saw you buying that lottery ticket. Are you going to win? I hope so. Well, that's a long shot, right? I hope so. So you don't change the way you live, right? You don't go out and buy a new car because you got a lottery ticket. In fact, we would call you very dumb if you did, if you went out and got a new house, got a new car, went and got a haircut. What is it? Gal's haircuts cost now? Like $5,000? I don't know what they cost. That's a lot. <laughs> and so you don't go out and do all those things because you bought a lottery ticket. You wait to see if you want it. But the hope spoken of in the Bible is not a long shot. It's a sure thing. It's such a sure thing that we change the way we live. We say, I have the hope that is in Christ. Therefore, I will no longer live as I lived. I now live for him. I now give everything to him because I have grabbed a hold of the hope that we have in him. See, the hope that we have in the Bible is a surety not the long shot that we have for us today. And so then he says in the next verse, speaking of this hope, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul. It is that hope that we have that becomes our anchor. What is that that is going to keep us from falling back from where we came, from getting back into religiosity or, or back into an old lifestyle? It is the hope. And it says of this anchor in verse 19, both sure and steadfast. It is a sure and steadfast hope. But the hope isn't a thing. The hope is a person. Look at the end of the verse. And, and which enters the presence behind the veil. The hope that we have enters the presence behind the veil. What veil? The veil that's 60 feet high and 30 feet wide and six inches thick. So you guys thought when I was talking about the veil earlier, I was just on a rabbit trail that I got talking about the temple and I got into the veil on that just to kind of get off into it. But I had reasons in the text. He went behind the veil. The veil, only one person could go once a year. That person had to have their sins dealt with first before they could go. But Jesus entered the veil in two ways. Number one, when he died on the cross, they had bound him, they had beaten him, they'd scourged him. They beat him to the point where he no longer looked like a man, the Bible says. They stretched his arms out on that cross and they drove the nails through his flesh and into that tree and he bled and he died for you and me. And at the moment that he breathed out his last breath, he said, Totelestai, it is finished. And the Bible says there was an earthquake and the veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom and suddenly there was access. But the second way, in which he entered into the veil was for you because you couldn't go. Look at verse 19. This hope we have as an anchor. Excuse me, look at verse uh, 20. Where the forerunner has entered for us. Jesus entered behind the veil for you because you needed someone to go for you because you were lost, because you're perishing. You ever had somebody come to you in a great moment of need? Do you ever have call your spouse and have them show up and you're so thankful for them? You had a moment of need and they were there. Well, Jesus has come to you when no one else could help you. You were completely and totally lost and he was there at that moment, that greatest moment of need. Friend of mine, and you guys know him, Gino Geraci. He's been a good friend of mine for a long time and Gino's a chaplain for the FBI. And at Columbine, remember the shooting in uh, Littleton, Colorado, his church is in South Denver. He was called onto the scene. 
And he was there when they were bringing the kids out that had died and the kids out that were dying. And um, Gino, by God's providence, was speaking the week that Lisa went to be with the Lord. And it was great to have someone that had his experiences sharing with us on the morning that we all, you, you guys all found out that Lisa had, had gone to be with the Lord. And Gino tells a story about Columbine, which always makes me tear up. So I'll try to get through it without acting like a big baby. But he tells a story about he's there and he's talking to these people that are coming out that are wounded and, and he's ministering to people and he's trying to settle people down and a girl comes out and she's mortally wounded and, and he doesn't know she's wounded like that, but he soon realized that she's dying. And he holds her hand and he talks her into eternity. Remember, in Columbine, they were shooting Christians. Do you remember that? In that particular shooting, they were putting guns in people's faces and saying, do you believe in God? And if they said yes, they pulled the trigger. And so they had done that to several of them. And so he's talking this girl into eternity who had, who had confessed Christ and been shot for it. And at the funeral, Gino's doing the funeral and her mother comes up and says, I want to thank you for being there in that moment with my daughter. That someone was there, she wasn't by herself when she died, but that you were there to help her into eternity. And when you think about someone alone, someone's daughter alone and dying by themselves, Gino says, I'm so thankful God used me to be there by her to help her into eternity. Now, that's a hard story to hear. But listen, you have somebody at your most desperate moment who has gone into the veil for you, who is there to rescue you, who will always be there, who will be there at the greatest moments of your life and will be there at the darkest moment of your life. And in that day that you enter into eternity, he'll be there with you. And it will be a great moment as he does. He entered into the veil. No wonder Job said, I know that my Redeemer lives and he will stand on this earth. We have a redeemer. We have someone who has died for us. Therefore, we want to run the race that we have with endurance. And so he says, finally, at the end of verse 20, this hope that we have as an anchor, excuse me, I keep going to 19, verse 20 again, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now he returns to Melchizedek. He has not been on a, a rabbit trail like we possibly think. He's laying the foundation for who has gone behind the veil for us. And he's not a Levite. He's not a descendant of Aaron. Nevertheless, he is a high priest forever by the order of Melchizedek. And that's where we're going to go in the next chapter. We'll be looking ahead for, for Melchizedek. However, for today, we want to be imitators of those who by faith and patience receive the promises of God. We want to run the race swiftly. We want to run the race. I, we want to run the race swiftly. But for me, really, for you, I, I would love to see you run it swiftly, but just run it. If you're crawling over the finish line, just crawl, okay? <laughs> the rest of us will be like, come on, you can make it, come on. We just want to see you finish the race. And the only way to finish the race is to be in the race. Get back in the race, run the race swiftly. You have someone that has gone behind the veil for you. You have a redeemer, a very personal thing. Stand up with me and let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for this text. It is a, uh, it is a powerful text. We want to thank you for the continued work that you're doing in each one of our lives. And we pray that we would indeed live wholeheartedly for you, that we would get back in the race. I pray for those that are here that have kind of left the race and are no longer running with you. We pray that they would run the race you've given them effectively and fervently. And I pray for all, also for those that have never made a commitment to you, 
that before they leave this place today, they would make that commitment. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. We pray that the Lord is speaking to you in a personal way here at Practical Christian Living. If you'd like to hear more of Robert Furrow's teachings, visit calvarytucson.com. For our local listeners, Calvary Tucson is open and holding physical services while being mindful of social distancing guidelines. Our East Campus at Speedway and Camino Seco meets Saturdays at 6 p.m. and Sunday mornings at 9.45 a.m. Our West Campus, south of Palo Verde and I-10, meets Sunday mornings at 8.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. Our midweek service times are Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. at our East Campus and 7.15 p.m. at our West Campus. If you prefer, you can watch our service online at live.calvarytucson.com and also on our Facebook page and YouTube channel. Our online campus is available during East Campus service times. If Practical Christian Living Radio has blessed you and you'd like to donate, please visit pclaz.org. That's pclaz.org, where you can make a secure one-time donation or sign on to become a monthly partner on a reoccurring basis. Have you accepted Jesus into your life or have questions about salvation? Email us at saved at calvarytucson.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media, Instagram at Calvary Tucson and Facebook at Calvary Chapel Tucson. We want to remind our local listeners that you can watch Practical Christian Living Sunday mornings at 8.30 on Kgun 9 TV. May we walk worthy while we wait for the return of our Savior. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living.